0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, Carlo Rovelli, the renowned theoretical physicist, discusses his book Anaximander and the Nature of Science with writer and historian Tom Holland. Carlo Rovelli's book about Anaximander, the ancient Greek philosopher, first appeared over a decade ago, but this year is the first time it's become available in English. Joining Carlo in conversation is Tom Holland, who will be a familiar voice to many podcast listeners as a co-presenter of The Rest is History podcast, and his most recent book is Dominion, a history of Christianity. Let's join Tom in conversation with Carlo now.
2: Huge honour to have Carlo Rivelli here. So Carlo, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Huge privilege to be in your presence, one of the world's great theoretical physicists, philosopher of science, best-selling author. And we are here to talk about a book, Anaximander and the Nature of Science. This was the first book you wrote for a general audience. Is that right?
3: And you wrote it about 20 years ago? That's right. Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be here. And yes, this is the first uh, book that I wrote for a general audience. It appears now in the UK, but it's uh, it's, uh, it's twenty years ago. So, Anaximander,
2: who is Anaximander? Many of our listeners may be wondering, and why did you um, why did you fix on him? Whoever he is.
3: Well, yes. Uh, who is Anaximander? I think is uh, everybody who hears that to react this way. Maybe people have heard about his name in some somebody has some classes in ancient philosophy, but who is him? And the reason I wrote the book is precisely because people ask who is him. Um, Because I think, I'm not the only one, that for various reasons one might look at him as a towering figure in in the development uh, of the intellectual uh, West, and perhaps in a sense of humankind as a whole, uh, a major figure in the history of thinking. And uh, um, I stumbled upon him and got this impression. I noticed that others have this uh, opinion and I thought, well, uh, maybe I want to go more into it. And then I ended up writing a book saying, oh, guys, this is a great character. More should be known about him.
2: Okay. So he sounds Greek. He is Greek.
3: Where specifically
2: and when is he living?
3: Where is uh, in a city called Miletus, which is in uh, what is today Turkey, on the coast. Um, at the time, Asia Minor, or maybe that's later, yeah, uh, yeah. probably. So uh, the, the, the Kingdom of Lydia in the, in, the, in the inside. But on the coast of Turkey, there were a stream of um, independent cities that were colonized by Greek uh, people uh, coming from mainland uh, Greece um, in the um, previous century, in which was a great expansion of, of, of Greek people in various parts of the Mediterranean and we're talking of the 6th century before our era which is not a very well known uh, uh, period not a very known uh, i would say not a very a very, a very much talked about period of history it's before the classic uh, Greece. It's before the period much talked about, the one yeah. of Athens. Uh, well, Plato. So, so these
2: these so Anaximander is is one of a, a multitude of philosophers who are known as pre-Socratic, so pre-Socrates. Exactly. Um, so this is before the age of Socrates, before Plato, before Aristotle, the kind of the big philosophical big brand philosophical. names that everyone's heard of. Everyone yeah.
3: Exactly, which is about a, a century and a half later or something like yeah. that or two centuries later in Athens. So this is before and there's this um, group of philosophers that it uh, called pre-Socratic and uh, he is the first or the second, we come back on the first or second. Um, it actually is the beginning of this uh, tradition uh, which starts in Miletus. His um, uh, his city and uh, the starting of this tradition of thinking is exactly what uh, what interests me in uh, in, uh, in in his story. Okay, so
2: Alexander is in the city of Militos yeah. on the Aegean, the Asian side of the Aegean. Yeah. great city on the kind of the very the very flank of Asia. Yeah, um, this is a world in which it is universally. Assumed that uh, there are gods, that there are explanations for the way the world functions, that are tied in with uh, an understanding of the supernatural. What is Anaximander's take on this, and 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 what is it about his perspective on the functioning of the cosmos that is so distinctive?
3: What is mostly distinctive? Um which I would separate from the specific ideas that hit me so strongly when I uh, stumbled upon him. But it was mostly distinguished of him and uh, the group of people around him, so the school of Miletus, which includes uh, Thales' uh, master, so to say, which is a bit older than him, and others a bit younger than him, is that uh, um, uh, some of all the texts we have uh, from uh, the time Remember, this is three, almost three millennia ago, but civilization was much older than that, of course. We have texts that go... Writing, it's not the three millennia earlier or something. And we have a lot of writing from Egypt, from Babylonia, from, from the Greeks themselves earlier. We have Homer, we have Hesiod. Um, everything up to the, that moment um, uh, talks about nature, talks about the history of humankind, about the history of the world, about how things happen, about the structure of the cosmos always in terms uh, which are very deeply intertwined uh, with the divinity and with the gods, uh, and more specifically with the histories of, of the gods. Hesiod writes the, 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 his cosmogony where uh, the creation of the, of, of the world goes through uh, the histories of various gods uh, fighting, making love, doing their stories. When the Greek talk about uh, a tempest, uh, the rain, uh, the sun, uh, it's always Apollos, Poseidon. Uh, it's always uh, Everything is always motivated. Uh, and it seems to me, I'm not an expert, it seems to me that this was a, a normal and natural way of thinking about um, reality not just in the Middle East or in, around the Mediterranean, but the same in India, the same in South America, the same in Central America. With that school of Miletus, there is a sudden uh, rupture, like the yeah. French say, There's a remarkable jump. And we find these texts in which suddenly there's talking about the world, uh, nature, in natural terms. So cutting away every reference, uh, to stories of gods and uh, and, and, and especially personal, um, personal gods. We don't have the book of Anaximander, of course, but we have a lot of ancient authors that refer to him, so we have a sort of an idea of what he and the others were talking about. And uh, what presumably is in his book, it's uh, a uh, going back to all the themes typical of uh, the centuries before him, but Redescribe everything in natural terms. So the rain now it's caused by uh, wind and heat. Um, the creation of the world uh, is a story about uh, a very compressed thing exploding and fire and uh, constituents of matter, are maybe water, maybe some mysterious substance called Aperon. The, the origin of man of humanity, it's perhaps some f- fish that evolved, came on dry land, because in the meanwhile the climate had changed them. So suddenly there is a naturalistic description, attempt to understand reality. So the thing, I mean, the thing that everyone
2: will remember about the Greek gods is that Zeus, the king of the gods, has thunderbolts, and exactly. when he's angry he yeah. fires them down and exactly. incinerates those who have offended him. Exactly. And Anaximander is saying Zeus is not sitting on Olympus hurling thunderbolts, there are entirely... Natural. Natural explanations. For the
3: thunderbolts. Exactly. For for, for these thunderbolts. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, We don't have any trace of direct criticism of the gods or anything like that. It's just that all the attempt to explain nature uh, don't refer to to gods, don't refer to divinity at all. So so in in the the opening of your book, you say uh, of
2: Anaximander that he paved the way for physics, geography meteorology and biology yeah um but that his his insights go even further than that because so far we've been talking about phenomena that are evident on the planet that we inhabit yes but he also has an understanding of the planet itself of where the planet <laughs> is <laughs> that um so, so karl popper he describes anaximander's perspective on where the earth how the Earth relates to the rest of the cosmos, as one of the boldest, most revolutionary and most portentous ideas in the whole history of human thought. And I know that you agree with that. I completely agree. So tell us about what Alex Amanda thought and why it, why it is so bold, revolutionary and portentous.
3: When I stumbled on this idea before reading Popper, actually, I was completely shocked. I said, boy, a a, a single person got to this idea. How is it possible? I was completely um, amazed. Uh, And then I wondered why it was not noticed before, and then I realized that other people react like that, and Popper is one of these. And notice, Popper is a philosopher of science, somebody deeply immersed in uh, trying to understand what science is. And I think this is a reason, for me, Anaximander is interesting, and it's a reason in which... It is this scientific modern perspective that uh, sees uh, the the relevance, the potential aspect of this idea. So what is this idea? The idea is the following. Up to that point, the vision of the cosmos, uh, universal around the Earth, all civilizations, had been that there is a a sky above us and the Earth below our feet, uh, the ground, and the Earth itself had to be uh, supported by more Earth. Or maybe... Or set, turtles. Or turtles. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe big columns. Of something otherwise it would fall. Yeah. So with this oriented up and down uh, vision of the cosmos, which is completely natural because, of course, it's what we are born in. We we are oriented. We have the head up and, and, and we know that things fall down. So that's a natural way of thinking about the cosmos. Cosmos has an up and a down. Up is the sky, down in the earth. And then this man cams in the in 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 the sixth century, and with a courage that is unimaginable, because this is you know, going down to the main square of Milaeto and saying you know you're all wrong, your father was wrong, your teacher was wrong, your priest was wrong for generation generation everybody was wrong. Things are different, and I know how they are. I mean, how could anybody have the before the tradition of scientific development, and say what? Say that the we are living on a sort of stone which is floating in the middle of nothing, without falling, and the sky, it's all around us. It's not just above our head, it continues equal below our feet and all around us. And I made an effort to try to understand how could he got to this idea, which, let me make this strongly, it's correct, it's right. Because uh, you know we have pictures of the Earth taken from the Moon by the astronauts, and it we live on a stone floating in the middle of the sky. So he he is not saying that
2: the Earth is round, is he? He he's describing it as a kind of like a one of the it's a sort of bits column. of a Greek no. pillar. If you meant a chunk of Greek pillar, exactly a yeah. cylinder, yeah, something, a cylinder.
3: something like that, uh, or a flattish cylinder something like that. Uh, which there might be a reason for that. Yeah, no, it's not saying that the uh, Earth is not, it's not flat. And this is the reason why those who don't have a keen attention to science or a scientists or like Popper are very uh, tuned in to uh, try to understand what is scientific thinking, miss the point. Because uh, uh, we are sort of schooled in saying, oh, you know, it's a great idea, the idea is round. Just true, but to understand that the Earth is round rather than building a cylinder is easy. It's just cleaning up of a, of a picture, and in fact, the Earth is not round either because it's not perfectly sphere. So, yeah, well, Columbus thought it was shaped like a breast, didn't he? <laughs> but I think he'd been at sea too long when he came up with that.
2: <laughs> that analogy.
3: Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The difficulty is not guessing the right. Shape of the earth, which in fact nobody knows what's the right shape of the earth. You have very careful measurements to see what's the right. It's roughly a sphere, but it's also roughly a cylinder, right? It's yeah. more like the difficulty is going from a picture of earth down, uh, resting on something else, and sky up uh, to a picture in which the earth is actually an object uh, floating and not, f- and not falling. That's a, that's a huge step. And in fact, it took three millennia of civilization to do that step. And from that to the spherical Earth, it's just a generation. It's a generation after Anaximander, which the Earth became uh, spherical in the Greek thinking. The idea of the spherical Earth is that various attributed to Permenides, to Pythagoras. Pythagoras probably might have met Anaximander. They, uh, Pythagoras from Samos, which is, uh, you can see Miletus from Samos, is uh, uh, nearby. And uh, it's uh, was was a young... Man, when Anaximander was a um, old, wise, famous man, so um, the two may have, have met. So, how the hell? <laughs> um, yeah, how did he? So, so I mean, that is a big that. question. How did he get that? How did he get that? And uh, it's, uh, of course, the answer is very complicated, and we ne- we will never know. But certainly, there are obvious hints that that is the case. So, I think. From my perspective as scientist, the difficulty was not to guess that this could be the case uh, because we see the sky literally rotating around us. If you uh, look at the star in a, um, in a clear night, uh, um, in a few hours the, the entire starry uh, sky returns around us. So it seemed obvious that it keeps turning. If, if there's this big sphere turning around us, uh, there should be empty space below the Earth.
2: And, and this is also why Anaximander thinks that the Earth is the centre of the universe.
3: Yeah. He doesn't say it's the centre of the universe, but it's a, it, it gives a picture of uh, the cosmos, uh, which is sort of rotating around around, this, uh, yeah. this, uh, around the Earth.
2: There's big wheels. Because kind of, uh, they're kind of tubes, aren't they? He imagines there are tubes. Tubes. Spilling uh, light out through gaps in these tubes. Yes, and
3: yes. And once again... Uh, it's a fantastic combination of uh, something which sounds very implausible today, and a beginning of the right way of thinking. Namely, can we make a sort of mechanical model of what is going on? Okay, what, what is the sun? The sun is some fire up there. How so can it's s- not a
2: chariot driven exactly. across the skies.
3: Exactly, from a chariot driven by Apollos with, with the horses uh, to an actual solid wheel full of fire, with a hole, and, and what we see as the sun is, is the hole <laughs> that allows us to see. The, the... There is the major jump, which is from a, a mythical story, which is nice and beautiful, and maybe has a powerful imagination, strength over us, and emotion, or whatever, to a tentative natural explanation, and then later can be cleaned up. Then you get rid of the wheel and then you think that the sun is actually a stone and then a firing stone and then not long after you realise the sun is much bigger than the earth and, and so on and so on. And then, in a sense, this is the beginning of natural science. Right.
2: But there is a big difference, isn't there? Which is that Anaximander is not able to test this. He's not oh, able no. to offer proof. No,
3: uh, he's not um, able to test that. He's able to... Uh, offer ways of thinking, possible ways of thinking about that. Um, I think his genius was to address the question that obviously make the idea that the earth floats in the nothing difficult to accept, which is why it doesn't fall. Uh, I'm sure that for centuries of civilization before him and elsewhere in the planet, in other civilizations more or less connected to to the Mediterranean one, a lot of people came out of the idea, the, Earth, the, the sky is rotating around us, so maybe the, the Earth has nothing below, right? But nobody bought this idea. Why? Because there's an obje- objection. The Earth would fall. If there was nothing, if there was no elephant, no column, <laughs> no, no more turtle. Earth, yeah. Yeah, no turtle, it would fall down. So how do you get out of this? Turtle over turtle over turtle forever? I mean, just, it's just not very convincing. He has the answer. And he has the right answer. This is the point. And the right answer is um, that there is no reason for the earth to fall. He questioned the question. He realized that there's a different way of thinking about falling, um, which is that things might fall toward the earth. So the earth itself might not fall. So the right point is that he understands that something we consider obvious. We make a mistake if we generalize, if we extrapolate to the entire cosmos uh, because our experience is limited. So when we look more far away, things might be different. The other side of the planet, things might fall upward rather than (laughs) downward. So up and down, he changes the grammar of the meaning of up and down, high and low and this is spectacular because it's the same thing that copernicus is going to do that uh, einstein is going to do that uh, newton is going to do and, and presumably the you are doing so that's, as a, why, as, I got, as that's why i, I got a physicist i mean how do you how that's do you why feel? i got i got uh, into that because for me understanding what he did is uh, try to understand what i'm supposed to do i mean i'm paid for Uh, continuing with many others bringing ahead this path of discovery and at some point you ask but he didn't have the proof and uh, this is the core of the story because of course modern science is based on uh, finding proofs making measurements testing theories writing equations making predictions testing these predictions and we're told at school that this is science this is also science but science is not just that and uh, because uh, by making measurement, testing, writing equations, you don't do science, you need else. And what else do you need? Exactly the kind of things that Anaximander started. So at the core of science, there is more than writing equation, making measurement and testing predictions. There's much more. What is this more? Is finding new ways for conceptualizing reality, understanding that some of the obvious assumptions that we have are wrong. Or everything falls down. So the Earth should fall down. That's wrong. Copernicus. Um, the Earth obviously doesn't move. Okay, it's that, so obvious that it doesn't move. How can you question it? Well, if you question it, things get more clear. And let's put it in this way: Copernicus, did he have a proof that the Earth rotates? Well, well, neither was, did Galileo. Did he? That, did, was, that, was, that was the whole problem. Galileo. And it's <laughs> more: Do we have a proof that the Earth moves? No, we don't. We don't have a proof. Goodness, that theoretical <laughs> physicists telling me that. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> God. Do, do we have a proof that the Earth is not the center of the universe? No, we don't, of course. We don't even know exactly what it means. How do you prove that you're not in the center of the universe? I mean, suppose God comes and says, you know what? You are the center of the universe. Can you disprove that? No, because we cannot measure the boundary of the universe. What is the point? The point is that if we go from a picture of the world, where the Earth is the central unit, to a picture of the world where the Earth can spin and go around the sun, things are more comprehensible. It's a better way of making sense of reality. And so that's presumably why Popper is interested.
0: And that's exactly in, why in, Popper a, is, interested, in, is interested
2: in all this because he is very into the idea that of that what science, science is. is ab-
0: it, it,
2: it's about what it's about testing.
3: Exactly, and, but exactly, but you see, a, a person like me who is engaged in this. Uh, process of doing science. For me the real question behind the book that I've I've, I've written is not who was Anaximander. After all, what we know, we have some hints, some pieces of information vague. It's what is science and uh, what is the core of this process that is the scientific understanding of the world, which of course developed through the centuries, acquiring tools, uh, methods of uh, experiments, mathematics, uh, all that, testing. But there is something more radical at the basis of all that, uh, which is a capacity of jumping out from uh, obvious assumptions about the world, criticizing what seems natural, and coming up with a different picture of reality that might work better.
2: I mean, you've, you've mentioned this several times already, that actually the evidence for what Anaximander thought is actually very patchy. One of the reasons why perhaps lots of people haven't heard of him, is that we, we don't really have his writings. We have the odd sentence or two. Um, yes. And, and how, how complex, when you were writing the book, how much of a frustration was it that actually there's quite a lot about him that clearly we don't know?
3: I, I was having dreams of that, turning on the radio and a new <laughs> discovery, a new uh, book. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a Mummy in Egypt uh, was happened to be uh, covered with pieces of things on which the text of uh, Anaximander was finally found. Uh, so I, I I don't know how much I would pay to see his book in, in the original. Um, it's very frustrating, of course, uh, but uh, after all, uh, you know, there are a lot of people about which we keep talking and we don't have any of their writings. Um, Jesus, <laughs> for instance, or I don't know, Alexander the Great, we don't have any of their There are a lot of people who talked about those people. And there is a lot of people in ancient time that talk about Anaximander. the problem is how do you reconstruct the actual content of his book? Anaximander wrote a book a book um, called uh, um, uh on nature, which is indicated in ancient time as the first book on in prose, not in verses. So he's inventor of the prose, as Molly I would have put it. People who are capable of doing these things, not me, uh, have spent their life uh, collecting all the references to authors like Anaximander, and... Uh, Uh, which are scattered through through the vast uh, ancient uh, literature that we have and uh, like a puzzle trying to figure out what is reliable, what is less reliable, what is confused, what is less confused Um, and from that try to understand what was in in the book originally. So I started from there. I don't do the actual process. I'm not an historian. So I trust on the people like the group and others who have done this work and I've written some books saying, uh, on the basis of all this ancient material, presumably this was an Anaximander book. My role has been, I'm a scientist, I do sciences, I I, I start from this hypothetical extraction of the book, and I say, look, this is a major step here. This is a beginning of something that had a, a, a development, and the line of development of that is what we call modern science today.
2: So, so just to tease that out, this hap- You know, Alexamander is two and a half thousand years ago, more yeah. than that, and his writings are are mostly lost. Yeah. Um. So we depend on reports of reports of reports about yeah. what he actually taught and what he said. So if this is the the, the kind of the great beginning of yeah. the scientific tradition, how is it mediated down across the centuries and the millennia? To you?
3: Yeah, so um, very briefly, uh, the line is this uh, the, the, the so called pre Socratic philosophy, it's an explosion of discussions of possible, uh, all sorts of things, including naturalistic explanations of the phenomena of the world. Uh, uh, Aristotle talks a lot about uh, Anaximander, and definitely in Aristotle, there's an attention on nature. Uh, one can also say Aristotle is the first scientist from from another perspective His biology is is, is astonishing it's, uh, it's, uh,
2: because Aristotle you know he accepts for instance that the earth is is freestanding and that it's a sphere absolutely and he attempts proofs well he, I mean, and he, he, he is, proofs it's more than it. attempts he has very convincing proofs I would say some, I think... which are, some of which are not actually accurate but some are
3: very good I mean the shape of the shadow of the earth on the moon, uh, I would say today is the best direct evidence. No, today the best evidence is a picture taken yes. from the moon. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> by yeah, so Or, you know, the, the, the timetables of the airlines. <laughs> um, but if you discount the last, uh, discount after Vasco da Gama, the yeah. two, the, his, his boat of uh, uh, Magellano, who is it, the, the, yes, the, the, yeah. Two, yeah. the two, the fact that the shadow of the Earth uh, is obviously a disk. Uh, uh, from whatever orientation the Earth has, uh, it's hard to to come out with any other explanation if not that the Earth is a sphere. So, and that's as in as Aristotle. So, others are maybe less good, but that's certainly very really strong. That's very remarkable because Plato also says that the Earth is
2: round because his his um. His writings are the first direct statement of that, I think. In made. the Phaedo, yeah. it's
3: the first. direct yeah. One thing I noticed in my book is that isn't a dramatic witnessing of the silly separation between science and uh, humanities. Uh, the fact that uh, in the humanities, the Phaedo is, you know, it's uh, it's one of the most read, probably... And nobody notices that it's the first <laughs> written yeah. statement in the history of humankind, which says the earth is round. But it's also, it's fascinating yeah. that Dargenes Laërtius,
2: who you talk about a lot in the book, because he writes these histories of biographies of philosophers. And one of the fascinating things in his biographies is that he's endlessly saying that a whole range of philosophers <laughs> are the first to have come up with this idea that the globe is, that the, that, that the earth is round. And so clearly by that point, it's been recognised that it that discovery is a is a something that you you know you want to you want boast a tr- about. A to attribute yeah. the most about to your exactly hero.
3: exactly exactly in fact we don't know who is the first one um yeah and there's a, a century a little bit more of a century so it's it's astonishing and Aximander came out with the idea that there is is just a, an object with a shape and a century later everybody's convinced plato says he believes this round but is. Doesn't
2: have the proof of it, but also, I mean, it's a different way of understanding the world, isn't it? I mean, Plato is is seeing the world in it, it as, as as ideals. I mean, that's what matters. That's true. Whereas Aristotle is more he's he's more about looking in the insides of octopuses and absolutely you know, and do observational uh, yeah, dissecting,
3: right? Do observative science, but out of those schools, uh, in fact, it's Plato the anti-scientist in a sense that sets the problem of astronomy, ancient astronomy. Can we predict, in fact, fully understand, or reconstruct the motion of the heavens in terms of mathematics? It's Plato that has the bring forth the Pythagorean intuition, which is an astonishing intuition of the ancient world that mathematics is useful for describing reality, which is totally yeah. missing in Anaximander, of course.
2: So my take on the Milesian philosophers, and one of the reasons why they, why Anaximander is writing in prose. Is, is that prose is in the Greek world is used to write laws, the laws of cities. So Lycurgus writes the, the laws of Sparta and Solon writes yeah. the laws of Athens and so on.
3: Solon is a, is a, is a contemporary of... Yes, like, one imagined. of the sages yeah, of Greece. Right.
2: Um, and I think that what the, what the Milesians are doing is trying to write laws that encompass everything. So they're trying to explain
3: everything. I agree. I completely agree. And I, I completely agree. that's also my reading. I mean, to the extent in which we can hope to, to reconstruct what was yeah. going on. That's also my reading. Uh, one of the greatest contributions of the Malaysian is exactly the idea that, look, things don't happen randomly. There are laws uh, that govern how things happen. And we can get to these laws. And this is definitely... Uh, very present in Athens a century later, and completely dominating the, uh, the, the fantastic development of astronomy in, in Alexandria, another century or a couple of centuries later, uh, through Hipparchus uh, Aristarchus. And then we have uh, that we have, uh, a direct uh, evidence of that because we have the Book of Ptolemy. The Book of Ptolemy is an astonishing account of ancient uh, astronomy, And it's science with a capital S of the best level we can imagine because it's uh, mathematics, observations, predictions and extraordinary good predictions. With good astronomy you can use it, the book, you can use it today to predict the position of the sky of Venus and Mars today. So this is a book written 2000 years ago that can make predictions good for two millennia in the future. That's science at its best. Contrary to what we teach to our students that Ptolemy is all wrong. Ptolemy is not all wrong. Ptolemy is right. Um, Copernicus is more right. Newton is more right. Einstein is more right. But the sense in which Ptolemy is wrong is exactly a sense in which Newton is wrong because Einstein has a better explanation. So there would have been no Ptolemy and no astronomy and therefore no Copernicus, no Newton um, without this... uh, Set of new ideas uh, that emerged before, uh, before that, and so th- your question was the line between um, uh, the Miletus and 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 modern science. I think is very direct. I mean, if you read Newton, he refers to ancient atomists, to ancient astronomy. Um, and in fact, if you read Newton, directly surprising because Newton says that he's rediscovering ancient knowledge. Yes, he's, he's
2: um, standing on the <laughs> on shoulders the, of giants. Exactly, yes. exactly. Or a and bit he, like the turtles.
3: Like the turtles. <laughs> and he directly takes... So the uh, you know, uh, the Galileo writings is his constant dialogue with Aristotle. It's just very clear that this... Uh, and, and, Galile, and, and this picture that Galileo has... Trashed Aristotle. It's completely wrong. Galileo was a master of rhetoric, of course, so he was attacking the Aristotelians. But then in his letter, he says, uh, 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 Aristotle is his master. He's just, and he says, if Aristotle could come down, he would accept me among his followers for the little amelioration I've done of his thinking. So there is a direct filiation in this, um, devel- in this line of development. This, of course, are all later reconstruction history is complicated and, mm-hmm. and goes yes. in all directions and you can read in different manners but i think this reading is possible that uh, modern science has a root at least a major root that start there
2: i mean it's, we're recording this um in a studio in king's cross which is not far from the British Library, uh-huh. and in the British Library, um, they keep the Lindisfarne Gospels, these uh, incredible Gospels that were written on um, uh, uh, an island off the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria in the early uh-huh. Middle Ages. Uh-huh. And the great the great scholar of that period was Bede. Bede. Bede
3: al Venerabile, as we call it in yes. Italy. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> I
2: think the only English scholar to appear in Dante. Yes, right? that's right.
3: Bede al <laughs> Venerabile. Yes. So we're very proud of him, which is why I've mentioned him.
2: And he... he he writes about the earth being a sphere and being a, a, a freestanding. Absolutely. And I was, I, I, I was so, reading your so book.
3: The, so does St. Thomas and so Yes. Yeah. But
2: I was reading, I was reading your book um, about eight miles from Lindisfarne oh. And, and, oh. And, and, and thinking how incredible it was that there was this kind of line of intellectual descent yeah. from a, a Greek on the shores of the Aegean writing 2,600 years ago, and this to the monk on the kind of lonely chilly sea. <laughs> and then to be talking to you. And this kind of line
3: of intellectual descent.
2: Yes. And how, how moving it was.
3: I find this very moving. I definitely do. I, I am very sensitive to this emotion. And uh, um I feel such pride of being with all my colleagues and being part of this long conversation. Which is uh, uh, the the steps through which humankind clears his mind, learns more, get confused. Um, I view modern science as just one step in this long, long uh, growth of uh, human thinking about the nature and themselves. So could, could I try one
2: other theory I have about why uh-huh. why Miletus? Yeah. Uh, why the, why Ionia? Because yep. you um I think where is it you say at some point uh, let me shuffle through my um Yes, yes, here. That that you're in your book you refer specifically to Ionia. Human civilization owes an enormous debt to this land, greater perhaps than what it owes to Egypt, Babylonia and Athens. Um you know, which is an amazing claim to make about yeah. a civilization that most people probably don't do are, are not about. hugely familiar with. <laughs> yeah. and, and and it is such a fascinating question. Why I mean, this first great enlightenment—I think you can call it an enlightenment. Why does it happen there and then? And um, my my thought on it is that, um, of course, there have been these these great empires that have existed before, and they have all they they have sufficient strength, sufficient reach, sufficient power to claim a universality. Yeah. So the Egyptians can look at the Nile and assume that the Nile is the paradigm for the whole cosmos. Babylonians can look at Mesopotamia and think the same. Um I wonder whether the the Milesians who are on the very edge of Asia and aware of these vast empires, these ancient civilizations, hugely more sophisticated and complex than they are, they have an awareness that they are not the center of the universe. (laughs) That that in fact they have to, if they are going to embark on this project of explaining um not just you know, prescribing laws not just for their own city but for every everything in the universe and for everybody in the world that is the pre- they have to think in universal terms in a way that is perhaps profounder than if you are in babylon or in memphis
3: yes um i agree and i think uh i i came to similar thinking um I would put it in this way, um, the vast chunk of humankind at the time, and, and, and for many centuries, uh, is made by tribes that uh, are far less civilized in the sense of having uh, a much less structured um, um, society, much less knowledge, mathematics, astronomy, laws, uh, organization, writing. Um, so I don't know. German tribe running and uh, it says is is not in the position of 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 making these steps. While
2: <laughs> there speaks in <an> Italian. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of
3: course, they invite invaded us. <laughs> we still resent it. Uh, um, you know, we call the Germans call the period of the movement of the people, and in Italy we call the invasion of the (laughs) barbarians. It's the same period of history, that's how we... The Welsh (laughs) talk in a similar way about the coming of the English. Okay, exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. Um, But a a place like Miletus um, was at the same time rich, um, very well doing. Merchants. I mean, I mean they, they, merchants, they have to be aware. They're mer- going up to Crimea, aren't they? And- well connected to, the, to, to so many things. They had, Miletus had colonies in the Black Sea, colonies in, uh, in, in southern France. Uh, I mean, Marseille was a colony of Focea, which is near, near Miletus. They had a, a port of call in, in Egypt, in nowcrates. They had probably caravan regularly connecting to Mesopotamia. So ideas get there. They are directly under the influence of the ancient knowledge of the of of, of the big empires of the big ancient empires
2: because I, I, there's there's a tradition that Ana, Alex Amanda's book is is published, I think um a year before Sardis, which is the capital of Lydia, which had been the imperial power that that the Ionians were paying tribute to, gets conquered by Cyrus the Great. Who is the king of Persia who establishes the largest empire the world has ever seen? I mean, it stretches from the Aegean right exactly. away to the Hindu Kush. Exactly. Um, and and so I would guess it's impossible to be a part of an empire that huge and kind of not think in potentially
3: universal term. Exactly. I think so. I think so. So Miletus is uh, at the same time exposed to the knowledge of the of the ancient, the ancient knowledge, but as you're saying, outside of it. <laughs> and uh, uh, not only that, but uh, what's peculiar of the Greek world is this extraordinary political, I wouldn't say organization, political disorganization. <laughs> well, that's how the Persians would
0: say it, yeah. <laughs>
3: yes, I mean this is a strange uh, culture, the Greek one. It never made a kingdom, never got unified, I mean at least at that point, but quite, quite, quite ahead then broken in cities, independent, and within its city, um, going through this strange political process of tearing down the king, doing an aristocracy, uh, trying and democracy. And writing
2: laws. And writing laws. laws,
3: which were not laws since ever, forever, no. or imposed by the stronger. Well, it's so debated, interesting, isn't it, that, or, um, um, that,
2: that, that, that Aristotle, when he's not dissecting frogs, is... Collecting the collecting laws, the different laws of the different, different, laws different, of the different and, and comparing yeah. them. Yeah. So
3: this is good, this is bad, this yeah. is this problem, this is this other problem. And so uh, there is this incredible freedom of thinking. You can rewrite the laws. I don't think in 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 in, in Egypt uh, people thinking about rewriting the laws, uh, we're oh, discussing yeah. them every time. I mean, the, the pharaoh maybe would have them cut the head if they were. Um, and at the same time however this is not uh you know tr- a tribe running around somewhere in the in, in the Asian uh it's a it, it has the direct knowledge that come from 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 the ancient civilization so it's a very Miletus is exactly there in this uh, happy position and now you have to say um something similar might have happened with the uh, uh, with the Hebrew and uh which were marginal, but uh, uh, the universality of of, uh, of their god of monotheism. Yeah. Uh, it's well, it, it's a people who were. Um, I mean, gods were local gods. Uh, since ever, okay. So and but uh, um, well, we shouldn't go in this in this direction, um, but uh, it's at the margin. I I think that the great ideas come from. When civilization merge, when they get in touch with one another, when uh, by by cross fertilization, Miletus is the quintessential point of cross fertilization because it's connected to Egypt, it's connected to Babylonia, it's connected to to the cells, it's connected to the Central, it's connected to everything, everybody. Um, few people, few, few few points have been moments in, in 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 history have been, and when there is a when Copernicus. Does his astonishing, extremely similar thing because Copernicus really does this, something very, very similar to Anaximander, right? Changes the picture of the, of the cosmos, displaces the center of everything, uh, takes, um, rewrites reality. Instead of uh, Earth, heavens, completely different now. The sun, planets, uh, sa- satellite, funny, strange thing. Um, so suddenly you you put in cases. The, the things of the world in a completely different manner. So that a mountain here is the same thing as this little point in the sky, which is Venus and Mars. Mm. And the sun is a completely different thing. So he does that. Copernicus is from Poland, but studies in Italy in the moment of a Renaissance, which has exactly the same political structure as the Greek. Mm. <laughs> the, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a merchant um, rich, uh, politically divided, uh, with all sorts of political system coexisting, yeah, and so on and so forth. And this is, I mean, the, if you look at China history, the by far the most productive intellectual period uh, in, in in the past uh, of the mil- millennia of, of of wonderful China history is the period of the springs and the autumns, when again China is broken in. A, in 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 little kingdoms, each one going intellectually in a different directions, and there are an the intellectual moving from pl- place to place, uh, trying to write laws but and having, to say how do we live together.
2: Having said that, I wonder though whether the the say the the fact that Miletus is in the shadow of the Persian Empire and indeed in due course will be wiped out uh, shortly completely after. by the Persians. Shortly after, um, but whether the, whether. The sense of being brought into a, a political unit, or being, you know, even on the shadow, uh, being on the margins of uh, a vast political unit, means that you have to start thinking in universal terms. Because, um, uh, uh, as well as everything else he's doing, <laughs> Anaximander is also a geographer, and he's it's a geographer con- kind of constructing this model of the three continents: yeah. Europe and Asia and yeah. and Africa.
3: It's the first geography. It's the first. I mean, the ancients say that the first map. Of the earth was, yeah. was was done by him.
2: So so he's thinking in kind of universal terms. In due in due course, um, this same culture will give will will produce Herodotus, who is yeah, in, sure in of the the, after, yeah the first great historian, and he likewise is is trying to write the history that is universal in its scope. And obviously, his understanding of of how his, his attempt to frame how the universe functions is a kind of reflection of that, isn't it? It's 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 only possible. For someone who is conscious of the vastness of the world and the way in which everything is contained within it, to start thinking in those terms. But you it didn't think, come
3: from the Persians. It came from outside. This is the astonishing aspect of it.
2: Right? But but the Persian. I mean, the Persians are
3: obvious. Ob- ob- is a major fact as a major component of that.
2: But you know. But it's fascinating that the Persians have a, a kind of uh, their understanding of their world is that it it is universal in scope. yes um, own, yes. 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 Um, exactly. And so in um Raphael's great painting of the School of Athens in the the palace at the Vatican, the papal palace at the Vatican, you have both zarasta the yes. great prophet of the Persians, yes. and you ha- probably have Alexander as well. you have Alexander? Yes. Yeah. So so <laughs> yes, exactly. you know there's a kind of recognition <laughs> in the Renaissance that these are yes. Do you know that yes. a lot is coming from this. So I just wanted to um we're coming towards the end just one aspect on which perhaps we might disagree and it's kind of interesting that perhaps um sim- precisely because Anaximander is so fragmentary that he provides a kind of Rorschach test for for one's <laughs> interests. so you're a physicist and so you see in him the 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 kind of the, the great granddaddy of, of of science and I've just written the history of Christianity uh, and I actually see him in a way as one of the great fountainheads of theology uh-huh which People might think it's impossible that someone could be the, be the, be the same both and the science same... <laughs> and theology. But I think I mean you know we've talked about talked about Bede, we've talked about Copernicus, talked about Galileo, all of whom were were um, had had a deeply monotheistic faith. That the two are are not necessarily um, to be split apart. Of and it seems to me that that uh, one of the things that Anaximander is doing is that he is he's essentially casting the entire cosmos as um, that the beginning and the end of everything is this thing that you've been talking about, the Apeiron, that is kind of infinite, um, immortal, eternal, and so in that sense kind of divine, and that we are all of us, all, hu- all living creatures, including human beings, that we are subject to this endless cycle. And to a degree, that's not so different to the kind of a traditional understanding that the Greeks had of the relationship of mortals to to the gods. The gods in the Iliad are, I mean, are kind of horrible. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of, you know, people are destroyed willy-nilly. And to that extent, it seems to me that Anaximander is simultaneously a very radical break from the traditional Homeric understanding of the gods. But he is also in that tradition. He's just recalibrating it. He's just kind of He's abstracting it, he's 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 moving it away from the kind of the personal, um, but there is still a sense in which the cosmos is shaped by something that is divine and and, and, and universal, kind of a monotheistic god.
3: Yes, um, and this is a very different reading of Anaximander than the one, and, and Miletus in general, the school, um, the one I'm giving. Um, I don't think it's necessarily contradictory to, no, uh, to I, don't think it is I think at all. it's they, they could coexist. Um and as I said at the beginning, um <clears throat> why we do history. Um we we tell ourselves that it's only because we want to understand the past, but it's obviously not true. We always talk about the present, <laughs> I believe, course, even yes. when we when we um we uh, we try to some extent to take away our own eyes from looking, uh, but but uh, but we never do that, and we don't want to do that because in a sense, what we are trying to read into history, it's quite about ourselves and the ways part of ourselves have come out. For me, um, my book is not a historical book on, about the an aximander. it's a book about thinking about science today. Okay, um, I can. I think I can. See an aspect of what today is science by tracing it back to something, uh, to re- rereading the past in a way that uh, uh, allows me to better understand what I am today. And from this perspective, I think that uh, um, the there is space for reading what the Malaysian did uh, uh, in the in the direction you are saying, and it's not even contradictory because uh, we are at a moment of civilization in what you call. Theology, now, and uh, um, what is called philosophy now, and what I call science now, they're more or less the same. They the all same spring project.
2: from the same. Yeah, it's the same.
3: Out. It's the same project. Yeah, a, a pr- the project being, uh, can we understand better what's yeah. <laughs> what's? Uh, can we make a a a concept or structure in which it makes sense? Uh, mm. A little bit better than what is in the Iliad. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Well, well so, so, or in Gilgamesh, or in the Ramayana. So there's, there's, mm.
2: um, you know, a generation or so after the Milesian philosophers, uh, you get this, this uh, guy Xenophanes, mm-hmm. who, um, he comes up with this devastating argument that really has never been better, and he says For the that, gods of the animals the, yes exactly if the cow if yeah. cows had gods they would yes. look like cows yes. uh, you uh, know Ethiopian uh, gods look like Ethiopians Thracian gods look like Thracians I mean it's a kind of unanswerable yes. point. Made <laughs> really. that yes. early but he's not writing that as as a as an atheist he's he is essentially mm. um, he is trying to synthesize the Milesian uh, philosophers mm. and, and to say that basically the cosmos is intelligence that mm-hmm. that there, it is Nous, it is kind of guiding intelligence, um, and I think that, that that idea that there is a there is there is a supreme deity who is to be equated with intelligence, with with thought, with with mind, is something that is obviously massively. I mean, it's, it, it feeds into Plato, it feeds into Christian theology, it feeds into Islamic theology. And that is kind of that idea that the cosmos can be understood in terms of laws that derive from a supremely intelligent creator is a part of the the story that is also the story of the emergence of of what today we call science.
3: It's a part of the story and of course modern science has been uh, sort of uh, repeatedly intertwined with the development of theological thinking in, uh, in and Islamic thinking. You know? in uh, in islam, it's, it's it's been a long conversation in which uh, ideas have intersected one another and influenced one another. And of course, uh, Christianity has a long tradition uh, of um, uh, reason versus faith debate within. I mean, that's I, I suppose St. Thomas is one of the main reasons of what he's doing this long um, which nourished what happened in the in mm-hmm. in, in in the Renaissance. Uh, in, in both in separation and reciprocal influence of different way of thinking, so it's a it's a long complicated story in which try to simplify it by saying oh Anaximander did science and separated from religion is obviously flattening and killing, killing killing the full um, uh, the full uh, the full complexity. I think it's marvelous that there was this period in which so much novelty of thinking emerged, and had this powerful. Uh, breaking point, because there was a breaking point. I mean, of course, no, all breaking points have connection. And you were saying there is a continuity between uh, the gods and and uh, the, the the polytheistic gods and this sort of nation, nation idea of a single whatever that, uh, um, that brings everything together and allows us to understand things completely. The thing was debated since antiquity, uh, with different positions. Um, the specific question of how much divine there is in the Malaysian, um, everybody came in. Uh, Aristotle has a, a, a take on that um, in the direction you were indicating. Um, Aristotle says, well, Thales and Aximander, are, they're putting gods everywhere. Yes, he says of,
2: definitely about Thales, doesn't he?
3: he yeah, says he says that. that. He says it's a, about Thales. He says it's a sort of, I um, uh, would you say, not not uh, pantheistic. Pantheistic. Pan, yeah. That's a, Aristotle reading of Thales, and yeah. quite remarkable. Augustine, come up the other way around and says no, he's, <clears throat> he's all wrong. In the City of God, he says about Thales and uh, and and Anaximander, uh, there is nothing divine in Yeah, uh, in there is. <clears throat> but he's also saying
2: that that the, the cosmos operates according to lo- laws prescribed by god which
3: um, of course it, it, is no, no, no. a kind of no, no, muslim
2: inheritance isn't
3: it and at the same time he uses the military that because yeah, of yeah. In, the, in the so uh things are complex and uh, and uh, i think that's 6th century it should be looked more. It should be. I completely agree. Should be because it's it's really <laughs> and, and that's a. That's why. It's really a moment in which we we always was focused on the fifth century, the fourth century Aristotle yeah. and company, and uh, but look what happened before.
2: Well, so that's why um, your book *Anaximander and the Nature of Science* is such a kind of welcome contribution to the study of science, study of religion, study of history. Um, and thank you so much for writing it, and thank you so much for coming to talk to us here. Thank you, Tom, for
3: this fantastic conversation.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.